many years ago as a child, I made a commitment, and that commitment was that I would not smoke. And that was when I was a young person. I don't know if I was 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there, that I wouldn't smoke. When I made that commitment, it made it so that every single day I didn't have to get up in the morning and say, oh man, if I had just had a cigarette yesterday, or I wish I could just have a cigarette today. We all make commitments, sometimes to our friends, sometimes to our family, sometimes to ourselves. But the greatest commitment that we can make is to the Lord and His church as the family of God. My name is Trey Rhodes, and I'm the Connections Pastor here at Northwood Baptist Church. And it's great to have you along as we uh, continue to do our study uh, through the book of Luke. And it's been a powerful, powerful opportunity to hear the words of Jesus and hear his teachings, to read some through some of the narratives and try to hear what he's saying to us and how we can live. Um, I do, do want to remind you that this Sunday we are having uh, one of our favorite speakers, and he is one of Pastor Tommy's friends, actually, and we're going to be helping him minister in Japan later on uh, this year. So uh, I would challenge you to take good notes because obviously I am not going to have this sermon next week. So I would just recommend that as Brother Don Broker talks to us that you take good notes. We're going to be preaching in Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 16. And you can open up the outline with blanks and see what he's going to be, get an idea what he's preaching. But do take good notes. And of course, I'll be taking good notes on Trey's notes as well. So, but it will not have a sermon. So that's why um, I uh, want you to just be prepared for next week when we go to do the study. And so don't contact me and say, oh, I don't have that sermon, because no, you don't. So anyway, I do want to give a short report on my uh, operation. Thank you so much for your prayers and what God uh, did through your prayers and the prayers of God's people. As uh, they did go in and they found everything that they think they needed to find, they got it out, they froze it all up, they uh, they then, uh, as I, to I think told most of you, they would go out and they would, once they f froze it off and did a biopsy, they would bring it all out. And as they brought it all out, it would freeze all the way out so that there wouldn't be bleeding. Praise the Lord. There was uh, very little bleeding. Very thankful for that. I was under for about three hours, so it has taken me a lot longer to get my legs under me. Uh, most of you know because of my situation that I had about 20 years ago, uh, probably the weakest part of my body is my legs. So it's just been one of those things that I've had to deal with over this week. And I thank you for your prayers. I continue to strengthen myself and recover. And it was also great to be around God's people. And a lot of people say, why did you come to church? You should have just stayed home. I want you to know that the people of God have a refreshing way of inspiring me and to energize me. So thank you for some of you that... Uh, pulled me to the side and prayed for me, some of you that just gave me hugs, and uh, others of you that uh, just said, I'm praying for you, Pastor. I know that you're going through uh, a good uh, struggle with this, and we're just so thankful for where God has brought you. I just want to say a huge thanks, and do say thanks to your Life Connection group as well, because I know many of them were praying, and it was great to get through this thing. Uh, I will be monitored. They don't think that I'll be doing any chemo or radiation at this point. Of course, things can change, but uh, we don't think so at this point. They're going to monitor me for the next two years. I think they're talking about every three months 
And so we'll see what that looks like and we'll be giving you reports as we go through this process. All right, well, we are in um, Luke chapter 7 once again. So if you haven't turned your Bible there, go ahead and get your Bible out as we discover what God is going to say through his, uh, through the people of God, to the people of God, uh, through the man of God as we hear the word of God preach. It's just exciting to be a part of what God is doing. So uh, go ahead and get your uh, outline out as we go through this study together. We're going to be uh, dealing with what we call family commitments. And the interesting thing about this is we're not necessarily talking about church covenants, but we are going to talk about church covenants because when we make commitments to, to God and his family, we're making commitments and covenanting with one another to be there for one another and to commit to one another and to demonstrate grace. And we're going to talk about some of those things at the end. All right. Well, as you remember, Pastor Tommy talked about uh, Hudson spraying pepper spray in his eyes and and he never knew that he needed to commit to telling his children about not spraying something like pepper in your eyes. But anyway, there's commitments that you have to, have to make. And so we all make commitments. Maybe as your family, your parents, uh, maybe as, uh, as a college student that you're going to um, go home every six weeks. Maybe you're going to say, I'm, as a family, we're going to spend the fa- holidays together. We're going to speak to each other kindly. It's just all commitments, all kind of commitments that we, are, that we make. And on Covenant Sunday... We remind ourselves, as we did last week, that uh, we have this commitment to each other. And commitment is more than just attending. It's a deep and that abiding commitment to live for Jesus together. I know that's not three words, but it should be. Together. The passage we're looking at is not about that. Um, it, is, it is about two people, a Pharisee who's indifferent to Jesus and a woman who's desperate for Jesus. And and I will and Pastor Tommy admitted this. This is not a, a passage that is primarily about the kind of commitment to, that we make to each other as a faith family, but it does help us think about the kind of commitments we must make to each other. I, I learned a long time ago that if you do not make your commitments where where they belong, then somebody will make your commitments for you. In other words, somebody's going to determine what you do and what you find important. It might be your boss, it might be friends, it might be something else, but other people are going to make your commitments for you. So we're going to look at three commitments today as we come together as a covenant family and covenant together. A little bit of background. Uh, If you remember from last week, Jesus warned the Pharisees about how dull their hearts were. And so now Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to come to his home for a meal. We don't know why. Maybe it was like Nicodemus. Probably wasn't. Um, Maybe he just wanted to have celebrity at home. Maybe he wanted to expose him as a fraud. Who knows? But uh, this idea of hospitality in, a, in ancient culture was a huge deal. And so these ancient homes had a courtyard, and so you brought your guest in, and there it had been open, people going by, as you remember Pastor Tommy talking about, could have seen everything that was going on, and they certainly could have seen whether or not this man was washing the feet of Jesus, or washing the feet of anyone for that matter. And, uh, even listening to conversations, having input into the conversations. And so, and I'm sure the case is is that Simon wanted the people to see him having this dinner with his guests and treating them well. It just once again had everybody patting him on the back and puffing him up. Um, so Jesus entered the courtyard and, and out is that none of the things that you would do to a normal person, especially a celebrity, coming into your home was offered to Jesus. Um, so they didn't do what they should have done. They 
when you recline at table, your feet would be in the face of the person next to you. Um, so you would obviously wash their feet. So if people had come by and they had seen these dirty feet, um, they would have known what was going on. But that courtesy wasn't extended. Not even a basin of water that we find out. And so I'm sure it was probably a way of embarrassing Jesus. Um, olive oil would have been offered for fresh up, uh, for a fresh up, and uh, with maybe in, uh, infused with some type of perfume. And so when you walked around the house, you would have had a pleasant aroma as you walked around the house. They would have known that you were the honored guest there. But that uh, infused, perfume-infused um, olive oil was not offered to Jesus. So this woman hears Jesus in town. She comes to Simon's house. She makes a bold move. She takes this alabaster jar of perfume, expensive, very easily could have been a family heirloom that had been passed down generation to generation, and she comes and he, she pours it on the feet of Jesus. And uh, all they can talk about is what a sinner what she was. And um, we certainly don't know the town, uh, the, uh, the sin, but the town did. And speculation that she was a prostitute by, by uh, theologians and, and uh, Bible expositors. But the text doesn't really tell us. Some scholars say it might be Mary Magdalene. Again, the text doesn't tell us that. Um, but uh, she could have been everything from that prostitute we talked about a second ago to maybe even a town gossip or something like that. Anyway, whoever she was, Jesus had changed her life. Uh, we don't know the backstory, what he, what he had done, but somehow her heart was changed. And, and when that happened, this woman was overcome, and she was thankful. So she goes to Jesus, she pours her perfume on his feet, and this aroma that was supposed to be there all along now fills the air and saying, he is the guest of honor. So she can't contain her emotions. She weeps and kisses his feet, lets down her hair. wasn't sinful, but it was not looked well upon. It was shameful. So it's kind of an embarrassing scene. You know, it, it make you cringy, that kind of feeling. And uh, all eyes are on this woman. She didn't. Uh, she doesn't let that stop her. She savors the moment with, from the one who forgave all her sins. She had found grace in the eyes of Jesus. Now Simon's appalled, and he says, "We well, you know Jesus probably appalled, appalled as well, but Jesus was not." He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then he goes into a parable. And the parable points out that both were debtors. But on the outside, it didn't look like Simon was a debtor at all, even though he was. It was obvious a sinful woman was a debtor, a big debtor, a debt that she could not repay. Um, and the parable is while one was in greater debt than the other, neither could pay back the debt. The creditor forgave both. Problem is this. Simon was a debtor. They couldn't see it because on the outside he looked like he had his act together. Respect, he had respect from the people. Um, but now everybody knew what the woman's debt was. She was a known sinner. She had overwhelming debt. And she experienced Jesus' overwhelming grace. And she loved Jesus far more than Simon could because she knew his grace. So Jesus then in the last four verses or four or five verses in verse 44 to 48 scolds Simon for his lack of common courtesy and then tells the woman her sins are forgiven, and then he claims he is God. Verse 49 to 50, if you go back to that passage of Scripture and you jump down there, he says this. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man that he even forgives sins? And he said, The woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Only God can forgive sin, and that is absolutely true. God did forgive sin, and his name is Jesus. So we have this powerful story of grace and redemption love. So let's try to 
bring it in to what we would think about Covenant Sunday. So if we're going to covet it together as a local church, we've got to remind of three commitments that we're going to make. First is this, we've got to be passionate about Amazing Grace. Big newscast right now, big news headlines, we are all sinners. I know you're shocked, but we are. We're all sinners. We all have that debt we can't repay, but God in his love and grace sent his son Jesus into this world to go to the cross and pay our debt so our sins could be forgiven. That's grace. Problem is, many of us forget how amazing God's grace really is. So how then, how are we going to stay there? Well, the first way is that we can't see ourselves as accomplished moralists. You know, we're always trying to think how great we are and look at ourselves and think, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you know, I, I'm faithful to my spouse. I love my kids, work hard, all those kind of things we hear over and over again. I even volunteer at the church occasionally. I help in Awanas, you know, all those things. Accomplished moralists always, though, are looking, having people look at them and say, hey, hey, I want you to know what I've done. And then when you see people that aren't doing it, you say, hey, I want you to look at what they haven't. So we, we can't see ourselves as accomplished moralists, but we must see ourselves as accomplished sinners. So before we pat ourselves on the back, remember that we do a really good job of one thing, and that's rebelling against God. So why is that important? Because accomplished moralists don't give grace. Accomplished sinners who see their sin and experience grace are motivated to give grace. What does this mean on Covenant Sunday? Well, we've got to keep believing and keep proclaiming that grace can transform anyone and that there is no one who's not welcome in Northwood. No one that, will not, that we will not attempt to reach with the gospel. We will never shun people because of their past, because of any current struggles. We don't embrace or condone sin, but we welcome all sinners just like Jesus did. So, First commitment we make, we must be compassionate about amazing grace. But the second is this, we must be passionate about extravagant worship. And this is a little different because we, you know, we think of extravagant worship, we think of this woman pouring the oil on Jesus and weeping over him and thanking him for the forgiveness he offered her and, and her gratitude to him. Uh, you know, sometimes we think that we have, to, we have to be loud and proud and all those things. And really, well, passionate worship isn't like that at all. Uh, but I will tell you a couple. Pastor Tommy shared a couple things. Passionate worship is, and it's first of all unashamed. As a faith family, we're unashamed to worship God. We don't mind. We 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 don't think it's a shame to call Jesus Lord. We don't uh, shy away from saying He is the way, the truth, and the life. We tell Him that we need Him. We are willing to express our love to Him. That's a commitment we make as a church family. It's unashamed. Passionate worship is also laying down my life for Jesus. So I can tell you passionate worship is not loud music, raising hands, singing loud. Now, that can be an expression of worship. But it can also just be an expression of emotion. And we, we, don't, we can't judge hearts, so we don't know. Passionate worship is what Romans 12.1 tells us to do. Therefore, we lay our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Daily laying our lives on the altar and saying we belong to you. Passion worship is obedience. It's a reminder that we want to obey Jesus and respond to what we believe. Passion worship is costly. It's going to cost desires and time and talents and resources. It's going to cost our energy. Passion worship is focused. Who is it focused on? Jesus. Remember, it's not 
about me. If you can say one thing about focusing on Jesus, remember it's not about you. I'm free to live in a covenant relationship with the local church, and we learn to put the needs of others above our own, and we imitate the example of Jesus. Have this uh, attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now, if you're not comfortable with passionate worship, then you probably won't be comfortable with, with Northwood because we're going to constantly challenge you to stay focused. All right. And then uh, we talk, once again, we're talking about three commitments that we make. First one, we, we're passionate about amazing grace. We're passionate about extravagant worship. And then third, we're passionate about humble service. Uh, here's Simon. He refuses to serve Jesus because he's hard, has a hard heart. And then this sinful woman gladly served Jesus, and she becomes very humble. So as a covenant church, we're committed to serving Jesus by living on his mission, making disciples, giving, giving our time, giving our abilities, giving our resources, giving our finances for the kingdom work. Why? Because we serve because we've been served. Simon refused to wash the feet of Jesus. The, the woman gladly washed the feet of Jesus. A couple years later in an upper room, remember Jesus was going to go with his disciples. He was going to take a basin of water. He was going to wrap a towel around his waist. He was going to serve his disciples. He washed their feet. Their God, the God of all creation, came to this earth and served you and then went to a cross to die for you to rise again and rise again to save you from your sins. So what has God given you to give away? You see, we're most fulfilled in our walk with God when we're giving our life away when you're living in obedience and serving others for the sake of the kingdom. See, as a covenant member of Northwood, we want to help you grow in such a way that you will want to give your life away. Now, some of your people in your life connection group might not have been able to sign the covenant. Uh, some of them have never joined Northwood. They might think they have. We Every year we get people that think they've joined. We don't even know who they are. We don't have any information about them. We have probably 20 this year that we don't have any information about them at all. At all. And they want to join Northwood and haven't told us their name. And we don't know how to get their information. So maybe in Life Connection Group, you can ask. Anybody sign a form that, sign a, a covenant that was not, uh, has never put in any information at Northwood. Probably the, if you're in your class, they have put it in, but maybe they know somebody. Anyway, so we commit to Christ, we commit to the family of God, and we commit to one another to serve, honor, and glorify Him. So encourage your people to pray, to participate, and to be a part of what Northwood is doing. All right, guys, let's jump into the questions, and we're going to be talking about family commitments. This is the Covenant Sunday edition. I like how they did that, and um, we're going to be going through this uh, right now. And honesty time, what keeps you? He, he does ask some good questions. I think the third one is probably one you can start with. What should we expect from individual members of our local church? And when people tell you what they sh what we should expect for other individual members, they're probably going to tell you what is expected of them, but they're maybe not even doing. Um, because when people are able to talk about other people, they usually give a better answer, a true, more truthful answer. So allow them the opportunity to share. And they might be already doing these things also. I'm not, I'm not belittling anyone by, by uh, saying those things, but just to get them talking. Um, and talk about maybe the, the purpose of the church and what God, God designed the church for, how we are committed, and, and um, how do we live up to what he wants us to do. All right, well, let's jump right into the text, and let's examine the text. First of all, why do you think Luke chose to place his story right after the story of the doubt of John the Baptist? Well, what is the opposite of doubt? It's commitment. And uh, there, there's this connection that we have between 
this doubt of all that Jesus is to us and doubting what he is and, and then having faith that he can, so much faith and belief in him that he is able to forgive sin. Faith is not something that you see happen. Faith, is uh, Hebrews clarifies for us, is the evidence of things that are not seen. See, John the Baptist wanted some proof, and that's not what faith is. This is real faith that changes hearts and changes lives. All right, uh, Luke 7, verses 36 to 38. So if you want to turn to that passage and read with me, you can. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears, and she wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Now, why did Simon invite Jesus to his home? We don't really know. It could have been a Nicodemus thing. could have been a celebrity thing. could have been he wanted to embarrass Jesus. Anyway, let him kind of uh, knock that about a little bit and see if they remember what Pastor Tommy said. Uh, the historical setting for this story, uh, of course, is the time uh, when um, the time uh, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and he was going to be seated. Excuse me, I don't think it was Jerusalem. Um, but Jesus came into this town and Jesus would have been invited to go and be a part. And it, was, it followed, if you remember, Jesus warning the Pharisees of the dullness of their hearts. They saw Jesus as a threat. He ate with sinners and gave, gave hope to people who didn't deserve hope. Um, and so that, that's kind of the background, what, what's going on just before this. So what was unique about the ancient hospitality? All right, so ancient hospitality was, uh, was a big deal. At a courtyard, you hosted your guests, you brought them outside, you wanted everybody to be a part, you wanted people to be hear what's going on, they wanted to see who, who you invited, especially if you invited a celebrity, you wanted them to be a part, so uh, that, that can help. Now, if Jesus was a guest in Simon's home, how uh, would we expect Simon to treat Jesus? Like a visiting celebrity, you know, like the guest of honor. He, uh, you know, the idea of washing his feet and and putting perfume on him, and all the things that you would do for a guest, and treating them special. Now, uh, number three, Luke made sure that we know that the woman was a sinner. What is significant about her actions? All right, so here's this woman. Uh, she does things that shouldn't shouldn't happen. Um, she she takes her hair down, and while that wasn't a sin, it was certainly uh, looked down upon. Uh, she was known to be a sinner. Um, so we know that she was that person. They knew she was that person. And so then she, you know that she is giving something that is precious to her, to the Son of God, something that she would never be able to replace in her lifetime. And she gave it willing to him, willingly to him because of something that he did for her. He forgave her sin. Um, that goes back to this alabaster jar idea. What was significant about that? Well, it was probably a family heirloom. She probably nowhere had anywhere near the kind of money that it would take to have that alabaster jar full of that uh, scented oil that she would she would have put on Jesus' feet. Now, um, now significant about her weeping, obviously. Um, she when she wept, she couldn't contain her emotions, and so um, she 
um, just as weeping over what in gratitude over what Jesus did for her. Number four, uh, Luke seven thirty nine to forty. Um, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "This man, if you're a prophet, would know what kind of woman, uh, who and what kind of woman this was is touching him. She's a sinner." And Jesus replied, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And he said, "Say it, teacher." I think he probably is not going to be happy with what Jesus is about to say. But anyway, why did Simon respond in the way he did? Well, I think he kind of was appalled, and he was kind of letting Jesus uh, be able to say that he was appalled too. And I think that's about what was about he thought was about to happen when he said, Simon, I need to say something to you. I have to say something to you. Um, so Simon's heart was a heart that was unforgiven because he was not willing to offer forgiveness. Self-righteous and prideful is who he was. All right, Luke chapter 7, verses 41 to 43. The Bible tells us this. A creditor, he tells, starts telling the parable. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and uh, the other 50 denarii. And since they couldn't pay it, uh, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. Jesus said, you've judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? You see this woman? This woman you're condemning? This woman right here? I entered your house. She gave me no water. But she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hadn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and that's why she loved so much. What's the point of this parable? Well, to teach who loves more, the one who's been forgiven more. The one that doesn't think that they need forgiveness. They don't care. They don't care about Jesus. They don't need forgiveness. They're pretty good guys, pretty good girls, pretty good people. They're good people. I've heard that before. So what does this parable teach us about grace? That grace is undeserved and grace is greatly appreciated. And when that happens, it is freely given. What does it teach us about sin and self-righteousness? When we are self-righteous, we don't even recognize that there's sin in our lives that has been dealt with and that we are forgiven by God. It goes back to that old saying, except by the grace of God, there go I. See, Simon should have said something like that. I could, I, God has saved me and changed me and forgiven me in the same way that he's done that young lady down there. But he didn't, did he? He was appalled. All right, Luke 7, 44 to 50. What does these verses teach us about loving God? All right, let's jump into that. Turning to the woman, he said, um, it talks about all that she did for him. And then uh, he get, goes into verse 50. Uh, then, to, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Verse 47, that's why she loves so much. But the one who is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. These verses teach us about loving God. When God has forgiven us so much, it makes us, causes us to love Him so much because He's willing to forgive us so much. What should motivate our love for God? 
that love for his forgiveness and what he has done for us, that Jesus died on the cross. Our love for God ought to always be driven by his death on the cross, seeing what he did for me. If we lack love for God, how do we grow in our love for God? We go back and remember all that he did for us. Obviously, how does the story point us to the gospel of Jesus? That same grace is available to everyone who will trust in him who died on the cross to give us eternal life. All right, let's apply the truth. How does moralism keep us from seeing our need from, for Jesus? And by the way, this is in uh, section, uh, uh, let's see, I think it's section two. Section two, yes, it is. Uh, we can't see ourselves as accomplished moralists. So how does it keep our seeing, seeing our need for Jesus? Um, well, we look at our lives and think, I'm doing pretty good. Why is it easy to revert to moralism instead of seeing our own sin? Well, because, uh, you know, we want to think good about ourselves. We say, look what I've done. And we look at others and we say, look, look what they're doing. <laughs> we say things like, I'm glad I'm not like them. You know, those kind of things. It's easy to revert because that goes to our pride and our prideful attitude, the boastful pride of life. How can we be a people who not only see our own sin clearly, but extend lots of grace to others? We remember who we were without Christ. We remember the struggles that we face. We remember our own sin, even after Christ, that we still need to claim 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. To, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And 1 John 1, 7 says, if we say that we do not sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. So how can we be a church that is saturated in grace? When God brings people to us, we open our arms and we love and we care and we offer forgiveness. We offer them a welcome. We never shun them because of what they have done or even are doing. They're welcome here. So what's extravagant worship? Well, if we're going to extravagantly worship, we're going to commit to him on a daily basis. You can use in Romans 12, 1 and, 1 and 2 that we lay our lives on the altar every single day. How can we be a church that extravagantly worships God? Um, yes, we can raise our hands. Yes, we can sing loud. Those are good things. But it's daily living for Christ. It's expressing, it's telling people that we're willing to express our need for him and our love for him. We're not ashamed to say that we, that we call Jesus Lord. We're not ashamed to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Our, bold, our, our faith is bold and our love for him is loud. What's a church covenant? Well, we talked about a church covenant a little bit, but a church covenant is us agreeing together as a church to, to live this way, the way that Jesus would have us live. Why is it helpful for Northwood to have a covenant? Well, because it's good for us to know what is expected of us. If we're going to partner together with the church, we say, hey, I want to be a part of a church and I want to be doing the things and being the person that God wants me to be. How does our covenant help us to remember some of the truths we see in this passage? Well, you know, we're, we, are, we are always open. We are always welcoming. And you can go back, and I would recommend uh, before you go to church, you have a covenant uh, in your hand. Uh, a matter of fact, I'll send you a, a copy of one, and you'll have it with you. I didn't, uh, I didn't attach it uh, a minute ago, but I will put it on the attachment before I send it, okay? So how does our church covenant help remind us to be a people of grace and worship? Obviously, when, uh, when we are doing the things that God wants us to do and we are 
agreeing that we desperately need him and that we are in need of, of, of his power and his strength and that this is how we're going to live together, that we're going to be accountable to one another, we're going to pray for one another, uh, we're going to help one another. All those things are going to remind us to be those kind of people of grace and people that worship extravagantly. And then, of course, remind us of our service, that we're going to save the unborn, some of the things that are on there, save the unborn. We're going to, uh, and it's, you know, not, as Pastor Tommy talked about, pro-life is not just the unborn. There's much more to it. There's our seniors. Uh, life matters to us. Innocent life matters to us. All right, uh, number one, what do you think God is calling you to do in responding to the truth to respond to this passage? And then in response to this passage, how should you pray? And then that one thing, this is the one thing that we want you to concentrate on. Why should we desire to serve well in our church? What is that one thing that you can serve our church well with? If you're going to give away what God has given you, then what is that one thing? The giftedness, the talent, the time, the, the, the desires, the finances, the resources. What is that one thing? Let's see if we can get them to come, come forth with some of that. All right? Well, I hope that uh, this has been a good, good uh, message for you, and I hope that it's touched your heart and touched your life. And if, uh, as always, if you uh, need to ask me about anything about this and ways you can um, teach it or even questions about what was said, you certainly can contact me. Um, and if I am not taking a nap as I get ready for Sunday because I'm trying to get rested up and ready and uh, survive so that I can get to Sunday, and uh, finish well on Sunday. Okay? Uh, please do so if you'd like to. Well, let me pray for you, and we will let you go. Father, thank you so much for a church that loves you, that a church that's willing to open its arms to people that have been hurt, that are sinning, that are desperately in need of grace, because that's the way we were. Lord, we want to grow in such a way as the followers of Christ that we will want to give our lives away. So we give away our talent, our time, our resources, our finances, our, our efforts, our service. We give those things away gladly and freely because you are deserving and the church is deserving and the one another's in this church are deserving. Use us this week. Use us for your glory to teach the word of God. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you Sunday.